Lord, we're thankful for, again, your, your kindness to us in breathing out your word. Without it, we would not have the awareness in the particulars, Lord, about who you are. Certainly, we would have a sense that there is a higher being, but Lord, you have given us this specific revelation so that we can understand and we can, we can comprehend who you are and, and what you have done on our part. And Lord, would you allow us today then to be teachable, to be moldable, to be shaped by your word and by your Holy Spirit working through the word. So Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us this morning and allow me simply to be your messenger, your mouthpiece, that you would be heard and glorified today. We ask in your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There is an often quoted section of the book of Ecclesiastes um, that goes like this. There's a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And when we turn to the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, we find that in those Psalms, much of the discussion, much of the, the themes that run through it talk about reasons why people might mourn because of their suffering. Or maybe it's the struggle with sin, or, or maybe it's the, the defeat or the despair that they're experiencing or the loneliness that they're going through. But friends, this is not a time for weeping. This is Christmas. And at Christmas time, we sing. And we sing songs full of joy. And we've heard that already this morning. We've heard that as our, as our worship leader this morning instructed us that, that what we do has this thread and this tone of joy. But Christmas is a time of year when people from all walks of life sing songs. Some of them are about the Christmas season. Things like Jingle Bells, Frosty the Snowman, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Or deck the halls. And those are kind of seasonal, traditional songs. But most of them, uh, of the Christmas carols or songs, are songs that are celebrating the true meaning of Christmas, the incarnation, the Son of God becoming man. Jesus releasing his grip of heaven and condescending to this earth. And so we sing songs like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or... O come, all ye faithful, like we did this morning. Or, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Or, as we ended up, O holy night. And I'm always amazed at how readily people who care little about Christ will sing in Christmas choirs or join in singing carols that are so specifically clear about who Jesus is and why he came to earth. Last night, as I was studying in my office at home, I put on the Messiah. And I just listened to the Messiah. And it certainly was a secular choir. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can they sing these words? Do they not know that they are singing songs that are praising God for who he is and what he has done? Do they not know that they are inviting other people to listen to and hear the message of the gospel? Do they not know that they are saying, come and, and take notice of this little baby? And do they not know that they're talking about what happens at the end? And yet, people sing. These are just cultural songs to them. They're traditional songs. They don't pay attention to the meaning of the words. They just like the, the spirit of Christmas, and they want to be a part of that. And they think nothing of singing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, and Angels We Have Heard on High, followed by I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, or Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. But for we who are followers of Christ... 
We who are children of God, these songs, these carols have deep meaning. For they remind us of our rescue, of our salvation, of the price that was paid on our behalf by a son of God who came as a little baby, yes, in a manger, but came with the purpose of going to that cross and dying. And there's one song that we sing at Christmas that isn't just a Christmas carol. It's a carol about God's past salvation, about his present kingship, about his future rule, and it's the the carol by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. And it's this carol is based on Psalm 98. You may or may not know that. Now let me read this carol just quickly and see if you can catch any of, of the connections. Of the, you know, connect the dots of, of this carol with Psalm 98. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare his room or pre- prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You might say, I've sung that before, but I have no idea what it means. It's often the case when we sing songs, isn't it? (laughs) Even at Christmas, they're so familiar, we don't think through the content of them. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now, friends, that this song that we sing flows out of this song. And we want to think through that this morning. So Psalm 98 is one of, the, one of these five kingship psalms or royal psalms, and it teaches us about worship. It's not just a Christmas hymn, because the psalm refers to both the first advent, which would be Christmas, as well as the second advent, which is Christ's return. It is thought that this psalm is an exodus psalm, celebrating the exodus of Israel from bondage in Egypt. But we really don't know because the the text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that typically these psalms are sung reflecting times of salvation in Israel. And so it's very likely that this is sung during the time of when Israel returns back from their captivity in Babylon and they're celebrating in praise to God their deliverance, their salvation. Now they are restored back in the land. And this psalm breaks neatly into three stanzas, each of them answering a specific question. Verses 1 through 3, why are we to praise God? Verses 4 through 6, How are we to praise God? In verses 7 through 9, who is to praise God? So as we study the psalm together today, we want to see that it reveals to us three reasons, three reasons to sing and rejoice at Christmas and throughout the year. Now, that last part in that statement is really important because For followers of Christ, every day is Christmas. We celebrate this over and over and over again. And so we we certainly at Christmas time sing songs that focus on the incarnation, but we live out of Christmas. We live out of the incarnation every day. And as this psalm is a song, there are three growing and developing movements that build to a crescendo. You might say three songs, the song of Israel, the song of the nations, and the psalm of creation. Before I look at the psalm in detail, I want us to consider it as a whole. 
And as we consider as a whole, I want to make, first of all, an observation, then I want to ask a question. So first of all, the observation. This is a, this is a very obvious observation. This psalm is all about singing and noise. Now, if we're honest, there are a number of you here that sing. And there's a number of you, and I won't point fingers at you, who make noise, right? And this song, or this psalm, is about both. No nudging each other, okay? None of that's going on here. We love each other, regardless of that. But just notice in the psalm here, verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Verse 4, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Verse 5, sing praises. Verse 8, let the earth sing for joy. Then, in verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And some of you, that might be your life's verse. I understand that, okay? But it's all about singing and making noise. That's the observation. Now, here's the question. Is this psalm singing praises to God, or is it singing praises about God? Now, look at the pronoun in verse 1. He has done marvelous things. That is not singing to God. That is singing about God. So you don't have, you have done marvelous things. You have, he has done marvelous things. Now say, why spend this time to be specific, Pastor? Get this. This is significant for a number of reasons because some say that all songs should be sung directed as praise to God. And any songs that are sung about God are somehow inferior to songs that are directly praising God for who he is. They would say that the ones about him are more theoretical or more theological and and leave you uh, falling short of true praise. But is that a true understanding and assessment of how we are to sing? Should we sing to God? Should we sing about God? Let's do a quick experiment. And consider some of the songs that we at Gateway have sung over the past few weeks. I just picked a few. Just look back and see. All right, here's one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Is that a song that sings praises to God or sings about God? It's a song about God. It's, it's one man's story about his salvation experience. And so it's about that. All right? Here's another one. We sang this, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago. Jesus, thank you. The mystery of the cost I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood was wa- has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Is that singing about God or is it singing to God? To God. All right, you see the distinction. Let's do another one. How great thou art. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. About God or to God? To God. Now here's the one we just sang this morning. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come ye O come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. About God or to God? About. But here's the funny thing with this one. It starts about God. Here's how it ends. Yes, Lord, yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. The point here is this. The songs that we sing are both to God and about God. So which one is right? Which one is better? Well, let's then even investigate the Psalms a little bit. You have your Bible open to Psalm 98. Look at Psalm 97. Let me just show you. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Is that about God or to God? To God. Verse 10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. What do we got there? About. So here's the point. It is appropriate to sing songs about God. And it's appropriate to sing songs to God. One is not better than the other, but they do have different purposes. Now, let's just think through that a little bit, right? Why do we come together to sing songs about God? Because very often when we come to worship, we are not ready to praise him. We need songs to remind us of who he really is and what he has really done for us. We need songs to to lift us to a place where we're ready to praise him directly. And we can't put on the shoulders of a worship leader the responsibility of somehow snapping us to attention. I think this is one of the problems when it comes to worship leaders. We don't have this problem here, but you go into some context where the worship leader now is trying to stir everyone up like a cheerleader and get us ready with rousing words. And so they'll say, hey guys, it's great to see you all this morning. Everyone excited? Yeah, we're excited. Are you here to worship God? Yeah, we're here ready to worship God. Let's worship him together. Aren't you ready to worship him? Yeah, we're ready to worship God. But the reality is you're thinking to yourself, no, I'm not glad to be here. I had a terrible night's sleep, and I woke up with a crick in my neck, and my wife's angry because I forgot to change the cat litter. The children have been fighting all morning, and the coffee was weak, and I'm cold, and quite honestly, I'd rather be at home sitting in my chair, sipping on hot chocolate, and warming my feet by the fire. And I'm here because I don't want people to think that I don't love Jesus. And that's just the pastor speaking. (laughs) So what are we to do in those times? We are to remind people about Jesus. We are to call people to worship by pointing to God's word to see what it says about God. We are to sing songs about God. We are to sing songs that will remind us of why we are gathered together to worship. We are to to sing to one another, is what the scriptures say, to exhort and to encourage one another so that we are truly ready to sing the praises directly to him. Let me just go back and take you to, oh, come all you faithful, and just get what's going on in in this great carol. There's this... This, this gathering, right? Oh, come. Oh, come, all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. This is who you say you are. You're the faithful. You're the triumphant ones. Let's gather together. If you're a child of God, you are here because you're triumphant, because you're joyful in theory, right? I mean, if we put a survey out there, yes, I'm joyful. Yes, I'm triumphant. But I'm not coming in that way. I'm coming in with all the grumpiness of life, Right? Oh, come ye, come ye to Bethlehem. Let let me show you what's going on in Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. So we we get this, this gathering, and then we get this focus on his son. But then as it ends, it's like, yes, Lord, we greet thee. And it moves into praise. And so, friends, we need to be reminded about God so that we can transition into praising him directly. Does that make sense? We need them both. And I I go through all this to say, uh, you know, and and to remind you that both are absolutely necessary. But the reality is, friends, we're not as together as we think we are. (laughs) When we come to church, sometimes we're coming and we're prepared and we're ready and we just want to go boom. But many times we come in and we need some time to kind of work our way to the place. And this morning, I don't know if you noticed the crescendo of worship. And we got to that last song, Oh Holy Night. You guys were just like, bow. Why? If we had started with Oh Holy Night, it may not have been quite as holy. Because you wouldn't have been ready. And there's a point where we work to, to move you to a direction where you're just saying, God, this is all about you. 
And we need that in our singing. Now, having said all that, now let's turn to this wonderful song and remind ourselves that it is a psalm that is about God with the purpose then of stirring up praises to God. That makes sense? All right? And we're going to first of all consider these first three verses that I'm calling the song of the house of Israel. You get that right out of the text. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this is Israel singing about our God, about their God. And it begins here with a new song, a new song. We're to be called upon to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, this isn't talking about a newly written song or composed song, although it could include that. It's the idea of a song that is sung out, having been refreshed by the knowledge of the mercies and the beauty of Christ and what he has done. And you know what it's like. Maybe you haven't contemplated a particular aspect of who Jesus is, and, and you focus on that, and you're like, man, this is so good. You're, you're full now, see? So you're going to sing a song maybe you've sung before, but it is a new song for you. Why? Because you've been refreshed by that truth. So when we look at what God has done and when we turn to God in, in, in songs of praise out of what we've learned afresh about him or out of what we have been reminded of, we're doing that every time, friends, we come to sing here at church. We're, we're reminding ourselves of some aspects of him that are supposed to now be a new song for us, a fresh song for us. So think about that. When you come to church, God, I need to be refreshed with you. And the songs are there not just to sing. Now, I was joking with some guys here. We sang the song, um, Angels We Have Heard on, on High. And I honestly think that people love that song because they can take a yawn. Right? They say, Gloria. Yeah, I, don't tell me you haven't done it. See, we, we, we need to be reminded when we stop and we think about what it is that we're singing, it changes how we sing. And what we have here then is a question that is seeking to be answered in these few verses. We're given here six reasons that are all rooted in how God has revealed his salvation to the world through Israel. And these six reasons are given to us in three couplets. So when he's talking about poetry here, there's two lines that work together that are saying the same thing. They say it a little differently. So the first couplet about this theme of salvation, which you'll see, theme of salvation is in verse 1, it's in verse 2, it's in verse 3. The first couplet, the emphasis here is on what God has done. Notice it says, he has done what? Marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. Past tense. Looking back, this is what God has done. But what is the salvation that this psalm here at the beginning is talking about? We're not given a specific salvation, but when looking at the history of Israel, we can see the salvation of the Lord on many occasions. Let me just, just jot a few down for you. The salvation of the children of Israel through Joseph in Egypt. Or through Moses out of Egypt. Or the salvation of the people of God over and over and over again through the many judges in the land of Canaan. Or the salvation of Israel from captivity and returning back to restore the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Or 
the salvation of Israel through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. These are all, in our context now, looking back, reasons we can say, well, we can worship. These are the salvations that, that we can reflect on. There's many more that we can look at, too. In fact, the, the Bible is just full of God delivering his people, providing salvation for his people, but ultimately focusing on Jesus, who is our salvation. And this salvation is described as doing marvelous things. And the idea there is God's supernatural work intervening in the affairs of man to accomplish his purposes. So when we think back about how God parted the waters of the Red Sea to let the people of Israel go through that sea and to get away from the pursuing Egyptians, or the way God sent his son from heaven to redeem man and to reconcile him with God. Friends, we know the story so well, but understand its miraculous and supernatural nature. Or the way God raised his son from the dead. These are all wonderful or marvelous things that God has done. Now, salvation is not a matter of human effort. Salvation is a matter of God's mighty power. And if it requires God's holy arm, then he doesn't need your or my puny efforts to help him out. Listen to Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is the power that it took to rescue us from the, Satan's dominion of darkness and to translate us then into this kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So friends, since salvation is a matter of God's mighty power, no sinner is beyond hope. Now we need to remember that because there are people that we think of that in our eyes, in our thinking, they're beyond hope. I just, I just can't see how they can be converted. And yet God works mighty things in bringing about his salvation. He is truly mighty to save. Now let's move on to the next couplet. The Lord has made note his, right, his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nation. So we're moving here from what God has done to what God has revealed. Now, it's one thing to say this is what God has done, but in doing that, he is revealing. You get that? God's salvation, his rescue, his deliverance in the history of Israel was a sign to other nations that Israel's God is to be feared, that he is the one true God. And that is why when Joshua sends the spies into Jericho and they meet up with Rahab the harlot, she testifies of her faith because of what she had heard about the God of Israel. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. I want you to see that. Joshua chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 8. Here are the words of Rahab. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in, in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. 
Now, friends, this is an incredible story because oftentimes we think of those who are pagans or enemies of God as being, as being strong and, and so opposed to him. And we don't realize that, that they might put that front out there, but behind that front, they're listening. They're paying attention to what God has revealed about himself through his people. And here she is testifying about the fact that the God of Israel is the true God. And friends, hear this. God is in the business of revealing himself to the world through his people. And if you are a child of God today, God is revealing himself to the world through you. And you say to yourself, that is pretty daunting. <laughs> through me? Do you know what I'm like? Do you know my failures and my struggles? Do you know the things that I, I think in my head and the motives of my heart? And the answer is, I may not know all those things, but God does. But God still works his will and his salvation through his people. But it does cause us then to ask some questions. Am I a good reflection of God? Am I pursuing his will so that others can see him? And what happens if I fall flat on my face? And fail him. Now God knows that we are sinful creatures, but he also knows that he has paid for our sin through his son. And yet he works his glory and he works his will through frail people like us to bring about his purposes. So it's daunting. It's sobering. But it's also comforting. And it's amazing that God would use us, but he does. And he uses us to reveal himself. So we've seen what God has done, what God has revealed. Now I want us to consider this last couplet, which the emphasis here is on God's faithfulness to Israel that is seen by the world. So here's what God has done. What he's done is now revealed, and now people are responding to what has been revealed. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You see the progression here. The psalmist is now calling Israel and us to reflect on these two specific aspects of God that are at the heart of our covenant with Israel or his covenant with us. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. And the emphasis here is that God is always faithful to keep his promises to Israel. His steadfast love, his chesed love, is a love that is connected to his covenant. And he keeps his covenant with Israel, and he keeps his covenant with us. He is always faithful to his promises. And friends, not only is God faithful to the covenant promises made to Israel, but he's faithful to keep his promises to us. And so we can, we can listen to what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and following and understand that he means it. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the psalmist tells us what happens when God's faithfulness, when he is faithful to us. It says, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So this first reason we sing and rejoice is because the Lord is Savior. And the world sees this salvation flowing out of Israel and today flowing out of us. He is our deliverer. He's our rescue. So salvation belongs to the Lord and he is worthy of our praises. That's the first song. But these songs, they kind of are building up to this crescendo. So we move now into another song, and it's this, this different scene here. We've seen the fact that the Lord is Savior, but now we're going to move into identify him as king. And this is the song of all the nations. They've been, they've been hearing, they've been seeing about the salvation of 
uh, of Israel. They've, they understand now based on that example. And so now verse 4 kicks in. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Who? All the earth. This is not talking about the earth per se in the physical world. We're going to get to that as we move on to the next, the next stanza. This is, these are the nations. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the, the, the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of, of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And so it's not to Israel alone that we should be uh, praising. It's not Israel alone that should be praising the Lord as king. It's all the nations of the earth. They have been watching. They have been hearing. And now they are singing. And they are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. They are to break forth in joyous song and sing praises. They are to sing praises to the Lord with instruments that are used in the temple. That's the lyre, the trumpet, and the horns. And there's three things that I see that flow out of this that are worth our attention. First of all, the worship that we see here is passionate worship. This is passionate worship. This is not just mouthing the words or getting through songs. This is literally shouting to God. Now, I've had the privilege over the past few years to go to this gathering in Louisville, Kentucky called Together for the Gospel. And one of the most amazing things there is that when these 10 to 12,000 pastors all sing together with one guy on a piano. It's some of the most amazing stuff you will ever experience. To hear the voices, to sing. And friends, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Even if you are tone deaf, and I was with some people that were like that, it didn't matter. Because we're singing as this one mass voice choir to God. And there comes a point in time when, when we're singing there that I couldn't hear my own voice. Now, in contemporary uh, you know, churches around the, 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 the country, not hearing your voice is usually because the guitar has been turned up way too loud, right? And you can't hear yourself. It doesn't matter. But I couldn't hear my own voice, not because the music is so loud, but because the voices are singing with passion. And so there's a guy standing next to me who is tone deaf, singing at his fullest strength. I couldn't hear him. Thank you, Lord. But I couldn't hear him. But I was singing with him and with thousands of others in a beautiful way. And so just, just think through this, friend. It was a joyful noise from the heart, through the mouth, and with our whole beings. There's something wonderful about that kind of passionate worship. And this is what is going on here in verses 4 through 6. A joyful noise from the heart with the whole being. And their praise, their joy, their songs and worship are directed to the Lord. The worship isn't about them. It's about him. Now, how does that change how you or I worship him? There's a few things to think about. Are you afraid to sing out to God? Like I said, some of you can sing. Some of you can make noise. If you make noise, you might be afraid to sing. It might be you know, your self-conscious. Don't allow your pride to get in the way of doing what God has called you to do. He's given you a voice. You might actually learn how to sing from singing. Are you afraid to sing with your whole body? I mean, sometimes it's just like, oh, no, no, no. All right. but God's given you a whole body. Now, I'm not saying, you know, do this thing, all right? I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying, with, are you singing with passion? You can stand and sing with your whole body and praise God where you are, not even using your, your arms. You can just sing with your whole body. There's freedom to do that, all right? It's not like in some churches, you know, when you raise your hand, somehow the Holy Spirit's now being poured into you. That's just nonsense, friends. But God's given you a body to praise him. 
Now in the Old Testament, they would bow down, they would lie down, they would dance, they would do all sorts of different things. I'm just saying, God's giving you a body. Sing with your whole being. Do you think about the words of the songs you're singing? Have you ever, ever gone to a church, hopefully not when you've come here, and you're like, what are they saying? This sounds really strange. Why are they singing this in church? This, this doesn't even compute, but it sounds good, and the people are, you know, they're doing their thing, and they're singing away. Why? Because they're not actually thinking about the words. Do you think about the words? It's not the music that is supposed to stir us up. It's the words in the music that draws us to a place of worship? Are you singing in such a way that you are testifying to those around you that you fully believe what you are singing about? That's the whole point of, of Ephesians, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We come and we sing with passion, not because we're trying to impress one another, but we're trying to proclaim our affirmation about the things that we're singing. And in doing that, those around us are saying, well, I agree with this person, and I agree with this person. Why? Because this is what the Word of God says, and we're singing together. And we encourage one another by our affirmations in song. So, friends, it is passionate worship. Now, turn to Ezra chapter 3, if you would, please. Ezra chapter 3. And I want you to listen to how the people sang to God in Jerusalem after returning from exile in Babylon. So now they're back in Israel. They're actually beginning the foundation of the temple. Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And they sang responsively, praising God and giving thanks to God. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That's the content of what they're saying. And all the people, what? Shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. You catch that. They are shouting in song. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's house, all men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And the reason they did that is because they remembered the glory of the former temple. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, our purpose here at Gateway is not to annoy our neighbors in the area. But friends, if someone were to come into our church this morning and hear us singing, hear you singing, would they hear someone who is passionate about what they're singing because they believe what they're singing? Great Methodist preacher John Wesley told his followers, sing lustily, the idea there is passionately, with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. In other words, your past life, you may have lived it up, but had no hope, had no salvation. Now that you are his, you praise him with abandon and joy and passion because you know you are one of his children. We may not have good voices, but God isn't offended with voices off-key when they come from hearts that are full of gratitude to him. So sing with passion. Secondly, pleasing worship, pleasing worship. It tells us something about, about worship here. It's passionate, it's joyful noise, but it's also pleasing. And I get that from the sound of melody. Did you catch that? It isn't just noise. 
It's not just everyone just like, ah, and just, just you know, everyone banging on drums and, and tooting their horns and, you know, just strumming on instruments. So it's just like noise. This is various aspects of sound that are noise independently but are brought together in beautiful songs where there's melody and there's harmony going on. And there's order. So it's, it's music that is pleasant to the ear. It's music that is singable. It is music that draws our thoughts and attention to the one who's king. So the first stanza, we're told why we praise him. And now the stanza here tells us how we praise him. Passionately from the heart, with words and music that are orderly and pleasing. But the question is, why do we do that? Because the Lord is king He is Israel's salvation. He is the king of all the earth, the king of the nations. The nations have heard about the salvation of Israel, but now they bow in songs of praise to the rightful king. And friends, isn't that the goal of our worship? Yes, it's to honor and glorify God, but on a, on a human level. It is to please God and to testify of his goodness so that the nations are glad and sing for joy. That comes from Psalm 67 verse 4. That's the passion of missions. That what we are doing results in the nations singing praises out of joy and gladness to their God. Finally, there's cultural worship. They're not just using their voices, these nations, but they're also using musical instruments to make music and praise God. Trumpet, the lyre, the horn. So in our, in our contemporary context, it can be a piano, it can be a guitar, it can be drums, it can be tambourine, it can be a violin, it can be the, the famous egg in years gone by, the primary instrument was an organ. You go into some countries today, it might be an instrument that you have never heard of before. And it's making sounds that you're like, mm, I'm not too sure I like that. But people are using them as tools to praise God. So there, there needs to be some room to say that our worship, yes, is passionate. Our worship is pleasing, but it is also part of the culture that's coming out, right? This is who we are. All of them are being used to praise God. For instance, for me, it's just hard to believe that there's some churches or denominations who will not use instruments in their services. When the model for praise and psalms, uh, songs in the Psalms are full of instruments being used in worshipful praise to God. We had that this morning. All sorts of different instruments. All sorts of different voices. All being used to glorify God. This is the song of the nations that is built on the song of the house of Israel. So we move now from the first song the second song to the third song in this psalm, and it's the song of all creation. We've moved from Israel, who's worshiping God as their savior. We're, we're moving to, then to the whole earth, who, who are praising God uh, as king, and now we're in this, this last one where we're seeing creation that recognizes the Lord as judge. Now, the title here of judge might throw you a little bit. The idea here is not a courtroom scene. This is a, this is a word that describes God as ruler, okay? And just pick up what's going on here. Let the sea roar. So, so the writer here is using this, this figurative language to let you know that creation now is beginning to praise let the sea roar and all that fills it. So, I mean, this, these are all the creatures in the sea. The world and those who dwell in it, all of them are roaring along with the sea. Let the rivers clap their hands, clapping in worship to God. 
And then it goes on, let the hills sing for joy together. You see some hills that are all there. They're singing like a choir and they're praising God before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the, the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now why would creation sing? First of all, because the Lord will restore creation to its original When he comes, he will revoke the curse that has been put on creation. This is the curse that was put on creation as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. The, the earth no longer yielded a bountiful crop without man's sweat. Death had entered the world, both on humans and on animal life. And this is why Watts says it so beautifully. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. See, what's going on here is this. He comes and creation is waiting for God to reverse the curse that has been placed on it because of sin. This is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 8, in verses 19 through 22. Let me read it. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation now is singing a song and it's, it's roaring, it's clapping hands, it's singing together that the, the curse would be removed, that the creation will be rescued and restored to its original glory. That is yet to take place. That is what we have to look forward to. Now, in today's culture, when it comes to creation, we typically fall into two extremes. There's the, you know, the, the love your mother earth bumper sticker there's an attempt to de deify and worship the earth and not the creator. The other extreme are those who care little for the earth and, and rape it for personal gain and have no concern for the welfare of, an, of endangered species. Just let me just highlight a little bit of a theology of creation here. Three things. This is God's world. He created it. He's in charge of it. Therefore, we must not abuse it, but respect it and treat it responsibly. Secondly, the world is not what it was created to be. That all happened because of the fall. It has been subjected to frustration, bondage, and decay. Third, the world will one day be renewed and restored. And this is what creation is crying out to God. Our responsibility then which I think is God's mandate for us, is to be good stewards of all that he's given us. And that includes the earth. So working together, yes, let's be mindful about things like pollution. I mean, how many of you want to walk around in what we experienced a few weeks ago? That was a temporary thing. We want to do our part to keep the earth clean. I mean, pick up your trash, right? I mean, just a, an average normal person is going to say, hey, don't be, don't be careless. Be a good steward. Be responsible with the creation. But that doesn't mean that it's a sin to drive a gas-powered vehicle or to own a Hummer or to kill chickens or to walk on the grass. We need to be reasonable. We need to be biblical. So friends, creation is crying out for what God has promised that the curse would be lifted on them. Secondly, creation also rejoices 
because the Lord, the righteous judge, is coming. The sea is roaring. The rivers are clapping. The mountains are singing together because they are anticipating the coming of the Lord to judge the earth. But it won't be fully restored until it's, to its original glory until the Lord returns to judge the earth, to rule the earth. It's then that something unusual and something unthinkable will take place. Listen to Isaiah 11, 6 and following. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the, the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And friends, these are staggering images that betray the world as we know it today. <laughs> but this is looking ahead. To what the world's going to be like when the curse is removed and creation is restored. And when creation is restored, creation will rejoice. But creation rejoices in anticipation of what the Lord will do. And he comes as a ruler to establish righteousness or justice and fairness. Now I want you to notice something. There's, a, there's kind of a top and a tail that's going on here, and it's helpful for us to see it. And this is why um, uh, Watts took this psalm and, and, and made it, yes, a Christmas carol, but also something that is not a Christmas carol, but is looking to the future. I want you to notice the word for, because the word for gives us the purpose or the reason why he's saying these things. So look at verse 1. For he has done marvelous things. This is why we worship him. This is why we, we praise him. The psalm begins by looking back at God's dealings with Israel and reasons to sing and rejoice that he is a God who saves. And so we look back, and as we look back, we look back at his salvation ultimately by virtue of him sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. But also look at the word for. It's found in verse 9. For he comes to judge the earth. So this psalm ends with hope. It begins with hope realized in salvation, but there's still more to hope for. He's coming now. This is his second coming. So the psalm is screaming at us. Salvation is here in the first coming of Jesus. But it's also screaming at us that salvation is coming in the second coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom and finally rule. And from the song of Israel to the song of the nations to the song of creation, we hear a resounding God is worthy to be worshipped and praised. He is savior. He is king. He is ruler. But as we come to this psalm, we recognize that he is our savior. He is our king. He is our ruler. Surely, friends, these are good reasons to sing and rejoice at Christmas and throughout the year. I want to draw your attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 5 as we bring things to a close. If you are a follower of Christ, there is a new song that you can look forward to. And it's found in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9. And let me read it as we close. You'll see it up on the screen there. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and, your blood, uh, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Friends, that is, that is our song. This is what God has done 
for us. That's what God has done for the nations. And this is what creation echoes about who God is. He is worthy of our worship. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Lord, help us today. As we even just contemplate, not just Christmas, but just life in general, you are worthy of our worship. And as we've looked at this psalm, there are these songs that build up to this crescendo of this longing and this hope that we have that is built on this consistent salvation that you provided for Israel that, that finished ultimately with the provision of your son, Jesus Christ, as a little baby who went to a cross and died for us, being our salvation. And yet, we long for, and we anticipate with joy, your son's return, and the kingdom being established, and righteousness and equity being the standard. There's so much that we don't understand about that, Lord. But we understand that you promise it. And we understand that you are steadfast in your love and that you are faithful to your promises. And this is what you promised us. And so, Lord, we sing passion and a way to please you with the gifts and the talents you've given us because you are our great Savior, our great King, and our great Lord, and you are worthy of our worship because you are God. In your name, amen.